I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Hey, it's Vic with a quick note. This episode contains strong language and discussion of suicide. Please be advised. In three, two, one. A lot of times when we're making Back from Broken, we look for lighter moments, you know, funny stories, because we deal with some really heavy stuff on this show. And today's guest is a great example of this. You're a comedian. What's the funniest thing about agoraphobia? The funniest thing about agoraphobia for me is that I have spent much of my adult life traveling internationally and domestically to speak about a fear of travel and <laughs> strangers. Like, that's ridiculous. It's beautifully ridiculous. Sarah Benincasa is a writer and sometimes comic. And today on the show, how Sarah figured out how to manage her agoraphobia, why she can laugh about it now, and how overcoming severe anxiety helped her to conquer other struggles. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. As you might have guessed from my introduction, Sarah Benincasa, for most of her life, has struggled with something called agoraphobia. It's a mental health issue and the connective tissue in so much of her story. Someone with agoraphobia may feel anxious or afraid in crowded places or in places without a clear exit. But as Sarah will explain, when it first shows up, you don't necessarily understand why. The first thing she noticed when she was just eight years old was a sense of anxiety and even some panic attacks. She remembers that sensation vividly. So a panic attack, I often say, feels like, it feels like the moment right before you throw up when you're really, really sick, especially for those of you who've ever had the stomach flu or been really hungover. It's this moment of <laughs> pain, anxiety, and desire for release, except with a panic attack, the release doesn't come, I also sometimes refer to it as the exact inverse of an orgasm in that it's uh, terrible and you never want the feeling to keep going at all and you never want to have it again, but it is a full body experience. Oh, um, man. So, you know, you go into fight or flight, so you're, you're um, fight, flight or freeze. So your heart starts beating extra fast and your rate of respiration increases and your quadriceps muscles and um, your arms instinctively tense so that you're, you're actually ready to spring into fighting or running away. Um, your pupils dilate a little bit to let in 
more light. And I've read theoretically, at least that that's so that you are better able to perceive what's around you. If say you're running uh, in a forest where sometimes it is dark and sometimes it is light or some sort of environment where, where that would be necessary. You go primal, you go into this primal fear state and that is very disconcerting when you're in a grocery store or sitting down in a movie theater. When you've been triggered, I think a panic attack uh, is a misfiring. Can you tell me about the first time you experienced a panic attack? You know, it's hard to remember the first time, but I do remember a distinctive time, certainly in my memory, when I was eight years old. And I remember I wasn't feeling well at some kind of family wedding um, at the reception afterwards. And uh, I went to the bathroom and... Um, well, I remember being in the stall and starting to feel trapped and starting to think, well, what if I can never leave this stall? So I just kept calling for my mom and somebody figured out who that was among the 18,000 cousins and second and third cousins. I remember the moment where it tipped from, uh, let's say, rational or what I would characterize as for a child, which is... Uh, we don't want to be too judgmental of how a child thinks and feels, but I remember in my child mind, the place where I started to go from, okay, I'm rationally afraid because nobody likes to feel sick. This is a yucky feeling to, oh, I'm living in some kind of big story where I'm not permitted to leave this place that I've voluntarily gone to. And so that's the first one I remember. Um, and I remember the increased heart rate and the Increased nausea, of course. A panic attack generally doesn't settle down your stomach. <laughs> that just sounds so crippling. And at this time, you were only eight. Did you have any sort of like sense of familiarity or a name for it at the time? No, no. And 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 it happened as I grew up. I came to associate it with places, which is how my agoraphobia began. I associated it with things like going into New York City. I grew up out in the country in New Jersey. So uh, I would that would kick in when I was going into the very different environment of a city. Uh, when I was going to the airport, if I was getting on a bus that was not my school bus that I was used to, basically anytime I was in a place where I began to feel really out of control. And so I started to, over the years, think, oh, I, I guess I shouldn't go to a grocery store if this is how I feel in the grocery store. There must be something wrong with the lights in the grocery store or the environment in the grocery store. Or I guess I, I'm just not a person who likes parties. I just won't go to parties. Yeah. So as a child, that slowly started to happen for me. Wow. So you're already removing you know, basic human events from your, from your life at eight years old. Yeah, I used to take breaks from when I had to go to family parties, I would go and sit in the car if I could and read, or I would go to some small room, um, some kind of safer to me enclosed environment. Uh, it was hard for me to be around big groups of people. I, oddly enough, even as an eight-year-old, as a little girl, I did enjoy, I was never very good at 
dance class, for example, but I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the performances, even though I was very anxious ahead of time, things that you might ordinarily think would provoke a lot of anxiety did, but less so. I mean, I suppose when you're a child who gets frightened by seeing tall buildings sometimes, even as a kid, you know, some part of you knows you're different. So I came to cherish experiences where it was normal to feel anxious, right? It's normal to have performance jitters. I was nervous before uh, I started this interview with you. That's that's nor- quote unquote normal. That's the accepted, I think, understanding of what normal is. So I sort of started to actually enjoy those moments because other people had anxiety as well. So I felt a part of something. Sarah's parents were supportive, especially considering they didn't really understand what was going on with her, but they did try to get her some help. She went to therapy and was prescribed some medications. And by the time she finished high school, she started to feel like things were okay. She attended college in Boston, a smaller city that felt more manageable to her than New York. Look, Boston's kind of a starter city, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's cute. Like, they think they have a city and that's sweet, but... The sun set on that empire a hot minute ago. (laughs) In her book, Agora Fabulous, Sarah talks about how things really started to feel good for a while. She went to the Netherlands as part of a college study abroad program and didn't have a single episode the entire trip. When Sarah got back, she said it felt like her panic disorder was a thing of the past. I thought maybe the worst of it had passed me by. I thought... I thought maybe I had finally, quote unquote, grown out of it. I was still on the medication I'd been put on when I was 16. And when I came back from Europe, it was halfway through my sophomore year. So I was 20. And I think I thought, maybe I'm okay now. Maybe this is just, it's okay. I grew out of it. I I turned 20 and I grew out of it. Okay. So what happened when you got back? When I got back, there was some readjustment after that fun, exciting time far, far from home. And to my disappointment, I found that I still experienced depression that is this so severe as to interfere for an extended period with the living of daily life. And so the fact that those things came back was very disappointing. And I just finally got tired. I got tired of fighting it. I got tired of going to places and not knowing if if my body was going to flip out or not uh, i got tired i got was exhausted and mm. i thought well if this time away from from the states if if that time doesn't fix it uh, and this medication still isn't really doing anything other than making it harder to achieve orgasm uh <laughs> that's about it <laughs> And giving me a headache if I forget to take it one day, I don't, what's the point here? And uh, I, I could not at that time get it together to be in therapy on a steady basis and actually build a therapeutic relationship with an adult. So I didn't have the supports that I, that I needed that I think would have helped me. Sarah was convinced that she wasn't going to get any better. And the only way she knew how to manage her agoraphobia was to avoid the places where she felt triggered. 
She had this mental map of Boston, and she started to draw an imaginary X over the places where she felt anxious. As the months went on, she crossed off the Virgin Records store up the street, big supermarkets, the movie theater, and eventually even her classrooms at Emerson College. Sarah's world just got smaller and smaller, and she left her apartment less and less, until finally, she couldn't go anywhere. So how bad did it get? So it got really bad. I eventually just confined myself to what I felt was a safe space where I wouldn't have a panic attack, which was my bed, pretty much. And uh, my appetite took a vacation. So I lost some enough weight that it was disturbing. I was scary looking, I think, in my opinion. Um, and in that, uh, not it wasn't being slim that was the scary thing. It was just that haunted look that people get when they are able to feed themselves but but won't for whatever mm. reason, whatever is going on. But that sort of dark, haunted look, the dark circles under the eyes, the glaze on the eyes because you're not feeding the brain. So your mind can't function appropriately that I think that was scary. And um, so yeah, that that was the that was a very dark time. And certainly thoughts of suicide were omnipresent. Well, Sarah, what did your days look like? I mean, you're painting a, a, a fairly devastating picture. But what did a day in the life of Sarah look like when it was really bad? Oh, I would do my best to sleep 16 hours a day. Now, I generally wasn't fully asleep. 16 hours, wow. Yeah, I wasn't fully asleep the whole time, but I would wake up and sort of be dimly aware of what was around me and then fall back to sleep. I, I had very little energy because I wasn't putting much food in my body at all. Um, so it was not hard to sleep for long stretches at a time. And so you're just alone in this small square footage uh, not really leaving your bed. I mean, did you go to the bathroom? I mean, how did these things work? Um, well, I was in a studio apartment, so it was teeny tiny. It was on Newbury Street of all places, which is Boston's Rodeo Drive. <laughs> oh, Boston. Um, but uh, I guess it was, I mean, the place was probably 450 square feet, maybe. Wow, yeah. A tiny little like airplane bathroom with a little shower. And uh, I think there was a hot plate and a mini fridge. And I mean, it was real, real small in this brownstone. Um, I wasn't really showering. I sometimes would urinate in the toilet. Sometimes I would urinate in bowls or jars and like put them under the bed um, just okay. so I didn't have to get out of bed and go to the bathroom because that was too far. And also because I wasn't eating, because I wasn't getting sunlight, because I was very unwell. Uh, yeah, I was anxious about so many things and including sometimes it, the feeling that you get when you I've come out of a nightmare and you're irrationally afraid to get out of bed or you, you really are shaking mm. off the nightmare and feel that it's, that it's real. It felt that way a lot of the time in my waking life. Also, it just didn't matter. And I think it's in some ways physically urinating into something and looking at it was to my mind at that point, 
it was some kind of evidence that I still existed. Like, okay, well, I pissed in a bowl. That's real. Look at that. That came out of me. Um, I know this is, I'm sure this is a very traditional portion of your interviews where we <laughs> talk about pissing. In- the, the peeing in the bowl part of the interview. Yes. It yeah, it's we the had fin- it with the, the senator recently. Yeah. It's, Everybody it's who listens to Colorado Public Radio <laughs> says the best part of Vic's interviews are the urination portion. We, we have a Slack channel. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really cool Slack channel. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, I just was not functioning like a healthy adult. I was not a healthy adult. In some ways, I was childlike. And in some ways I I was not even childlike. I was something else altogether. I felt like some kind of monster and, and I yeah. certainly felt undeserving of, of life or of love. And so I isolated very, very intensely. Sarah says it only took a couple of months for her agoraphobia to spiral out of control. But as bad as things were, Sarah was actually pretty lucky. She had a couple of friends who would check in on her from time to time, and one of them alerted her parents. Eventually, Sarah's mom drove from New Jersey to Boston in the middle of the night to take her home. Sarah remembers listening to the same Dave Matthews Band song over and over in the car ride. Well, repetition, you know, repetition was quite comforting to me at that time. Sure. And the soothing aspect of a very familiar song over and over again. You know, remember, I'm agoraphobic, so I'm afraid. I'm deep in my agoraphobia, so I'm afraid to be in a vehicle for four hours. So at times I have my jacket over my head. I'm contemplating jumping out of the car, which I do not do. So she gets me home, and I do remember getting out of the vehicle. I remember it was cold. Uh, I, I guess the sun came up. It's so hazy in my memory, but uh, I, I remember that it was cold, and I sort of felt, I remember the smell, and it was a good smell, even though I was in New Jersey. It was a good smell <laughs> out in the countryside and the sort of frost on the grass. I don't think we had snow, and I just felt, okay, I'll, I'll be okay. I'm, I'm home now. This will be okay. Things didn't get better right away. That took some time. Sarah left school, started going to therapy again, and switched medications. She remembers that at first, it was hard to take a walk to the end of her parents' driveway and back. She worked on taking longer walks, and pretty soon, she was able to start driving again. Thank God I was able to get into cognitive behavioral therapy, which is incredibly yeah. helpful. Well, talk about that. What uh, uh, what is that for folks who don't know what it is, and 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 um, how did that help you start to overcome your your anxiety? CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a form of talk therapy of um, of, of psychotherapy in which you work on different issues with sort of practical tools and and Mm -hmm. homework, but where you look at your fears in sort of a very measured way. It's great for phobias. And you work with a therapist who's trained in CBT and you learn new ways of behaving 
And so the way that you think helps direct the way that you behave and the way that you behave helps direct the way that you think. And it's great. I mean, I love homework. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. working on specific things and how does this feel in my body? Um, what I walked to the end of the driveway today. How did that feel? What was that like? It gave me a sense of control. It gave me a sense of power. Yeah. Not, oh, I'm cured, but wow, I have a toolbox that I can go to to manage these things, to manage these experiences. And oh, I'm not alone. As you got better, Sarah, was there a moment when you felt that you really turned the corner? I got a job working at a coffee shop and juice bar inside a gym and <laughs> that was so fun um but the the job at the gym getting to work with other people was such a joy and getting to just be another person making smoothies and talking to human beings and yeah. making coffee and providing them with something that brought them pleasure if not joy and just talking to people not being isolated inside my own brain or even just in my family home But getting to talk to humans, seeing how humans are, getting to feel a part of something. And the very simple satisfaction of when I would come in early at 5.30 in the morning and brew the coffee and the way that smelled and making sure I cleaned up the coffee grounds and making sure the espresso machine was ready to rock. And I mean, look, why is there an espresso machine in a gym? I don't know. But (laughs) Sarah was feeling great. And she was just about to discover a new passion in her life, something therapeutic. But this pursuit would also create new problems for Sarah. More on that after the break. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a back from broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. Life was feeling good again for Sarah now that she was comfortably back in the world. She returned to school, finished her undergrad, and eventually pursued a teaching degree at Columbia University in New York. She also had aspirations to be a writer. And this is the moment where Sarah discovered one of her passions in life. A friend at Columbia named Caroline had a previous career working with comedic talent, and she saw something in Sarah. Caroline said (laughs) she thought that I would like to do stand-up. And I thought, that's wild. Why would you say that? And she said, you're just funny in class, and I can just tell. I can just tell that that's – I can tell that you would love it. And so I started doing stand-up. And I was 25. I enjoyed it. It was a way to get my writing on stage. I had always wanted to write books. Always. That was my big thing. I really thought that if you published a book or hosted a radio show that you were a millionaire. (laughs) Or, (laughs) which we both are billionaires, so we get it. But... (laughs) 
I really thought that if you were on, if you booked one commercial, if you were in a Burger King commercial, or if you were on Days of Our Lives twice, like you were, <laughs> that was it. And that's not how it works. But um, stand up was a way to get my writing on stage. And it was another way to meet people, to meet creative weirdos. And it was, it, it became a part of my career for many, many years. And I still do it once in a while. She also wrote comedy and at one point hosted an interview show with actors, writers, and comics from her bathtub. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Getting Wet with Sarah B. I'm Sarah Benacaza. This person is a famous star. One time she even had Donald Glover on the show. Maybe you've heard of it, it's an award. She is the star. Did the stand-up help you manage some of the mental health issues? Absolutely. I, I always say that comedy does not replace the work of therapy, which I believe is sacred. The, the, the act of committing to caring for yourself. And whoa, in, in therapy, in recovery, these are this is a sacred and bold choice. So comedy, dance, yoga, whatever the hell it is, does not <laughs> drive in long haul trucking, whatever it is. This can be therapeutic, but it is not, it does not replace the work of therapy. It does not replace the internal work. It, it, yeah. it does, you know, it can be spiritual, but it does not replace whatever your spiritual practices may be. It can be meditative, but it does not replace the practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. Sarah had to learn that lesson the hard way. After getting control of her agoraphobia, she was dealing with another problem when she realized she was an alcoholic. Alcohol is an interesting former BFF of mine. <laughs> My dear frenemy alcohol. It happened slowly. Her family had a history of alcoholism, something she knew about as a kid. And she generally avoided drinking until she was about 23. She started dating a guy who liked tequila, and sometimes she would share a drink with him, and her relationship with alcohol just grew from there. Then, as she got into performing comedy, her drinking increased. Comedians are often paid in drink tickets. This is the kind of environment that I came up in yeah. as a comic, and we got paid. If you got one drink ticket was good, but two drink tickets, wow, that's really cool. Thank you so much. It's the equivalent of what, like, I don't know, 10, 14 bucks at that time. By her mid-30s, Sarah began to realize she was becoming dependent on alcohol to ease her lingering social anxiety. She started thinking about her family history with booze. Then she witnessed friends who got sober and seemed happier as a result. So she quit drinking cold turkey and started seeing an addiction specialist. Sarah had a year sober without being part of any kind of recovery community, but the story of how she found one really amazed me. You had this moment at a beach in South Carolina? Yes, that was after I was dry. I was on the beach early one morning in the low country in South Carolina, where I've spent a lot of time since I was a kid, since I was about, I want to say, nine or 10 years old. And um, I was there by myself and I was walking on 
the beach and it was so beautiful. I hadn't been able to sleep the night before because I was about to hit a year with no alcohol. And I knew that I still needed help with something. So I was walking on the beach and it was just so beautiful. And I started to cry because it was just so gorgeous. And I there's hardly anybody else there. It was the first time I ever got to see the sunrise. It was important to me to see the sunrise on the beach finally. And I, and I did first time in my whole life. And it was as glorious as I had been informed it would be. And I was looking around to see if I could see any loggerhead turtles, which are beautiful and gigantic and sometimes prone to um, laying eggs in front of people. And it's a very beautiful spiritual experience. And uh, this woman came up to me, this older woman, and she said, excuse me, I just... Uh, I, I took a photo of you and I was wondering if you would like it. I was just trying to take a photo of the sun or the sunrise and I realized you're in the photo and she gave me this photograph, which was so beautiful, just on her phone. She was like, I can just text it to you. And I said, oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I thought about saying to her, this is very meaningful because today I, I have a year without alcohol. But then I thought, why would I tell Hmm. this woman? Why would I tell this woman that? That's creepy. So I didn't say it. She's an older woman and, and lovely. And I learned she had had a place on the island for a while. And so then I went home and I got the text and it was such a lovely photograph that I always cherish. And I thought, I'm just going to tell her. And so I said, I, I don't know why. I, uh, it's not something you typically say to strangers. So I said, you know, this is very meaningful to me. Thank you so much. I have a, a year without alcohol today. Um, and she called me and I was like, Oh boy, what is this going to be? <laughs> she called me and she said, I am so proud of you. And she said, um, both of my children are sober oh and my, my oldest child just got out of rehab and I work with an organization through my church. And she said, I run a program that helps recovering addicts, um, especially people who've just exited the uh, prison system to access their first jobs back. And wow. yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. What? I, I mean, I'm, I know a lot of listeners may not understand, but like as some, this kind of thing happens all the time in recovery and it's amazing. It's it was absolutely amazing. It was wild. It's what in my program, we call it a God shot. Yes. There are different programs out there. Some people call it a higher power shot. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a, call it. Yeah, exactly. whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, something that's a coincidence that has something more to it or feels like it does. And you can and look at it as supernatural or not, but it and is it's bigger special. than us. It's bigger than us. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just so moved and she sent me some photographs of some cross stitches that she had done for her son with little, um, you know, recovery phrases. Oh. And I said, this is so profound. Thank you for the work that you do. And I said, you know, I've been seeing this addiction therapist and she's awesome. She said, you know, are you working a program? And I said, well, no, I, I'm really nervous about going to meetings because I'm afraid that I'll see somebody and they'll recognize me. And I know that's silly because that means that's 
they're an alcoholic too. You know, if I see somebody and it's a friend or a friend of a friend or somebody's friend's parent, like uh, we're in the club, you know, it's all right. We're in the crappy coffee club. Um, (laughs) And, um, and she said, Oh, Sarah, you have to go to meetings. You're going to love it. She was like, you're going to love it. and It's going to change your life. And you had to, because of that moment, you just had to. Yeah. I absolutely did. And it was such a gift. So, Wow. Found a meeting of, of my people in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And what an entertaining place to really go to your first <laughs> meeting. But they said to me uh, that I, I, I don't think it breaches any kind of confidentiality to say that I was told numerous times that the best drinking cities have the best sobriety stories. <laughs> <laughs> and they you're, did. You're crying right now. Yeah, I'm a real human with all the emotions. <laughs> it's exciting. You can have a terrible day and just it's a terrible day, but there are there are layers of terrible and there are moments you realize when you're present for it. Oh, this this is less terrible than the previous moment. Oh, now this is more terrible. And you also know that my terrible day or my terrible hour does not mean my life is forever terrible. It may forever change my life. It may forever change my life and it may make my life more difficult with certain horrific things that occur. But it doesn't mean that I can't experience happiness or joy or contentment ever again. Do you think, Sarah, the tools you learned in your first recovery from agoraphobia, were able to help you have this moment? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Because they gave me a familiarity with the concept of being okay with managing something, not expecting to cure it. If I don't stay on top of my stuff, my what my mom calls your recipe, proper sleep, if you do meds, do meds, your spiritual life, what you eat, whatever, whatever your recipe is, right? Being of service to others is something that's now a part of my recipe. So it doesn't mean my recipe is always going to look the same. It's just, you know, it's it's there. And that helped me understand different tools that, that help me manage my alcoholism. Sarah Benincasa continues to write and speak openly about her struggles with agoraphobia and alcoholism. Occasionally, she still performs stand-up, and she hosts a podcast called, Well, This Isn't Normal, where she invites guests to talk about things like meditation, comedy, and nonprofit organizations. Back from Broken is a show about how we are all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with mental health issues or addiction, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Luis Antonio Perez, And you can find a list of everyone who helped make this episode possible in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.